Hey everyone, it is Wednesday and welcome back to Through Triple A Eyes. I'm your host, Triple A. So this week, I have a really, really special interview with Mr. Corey Alston of Sweetgrass Baskets in Charleston, South Carolina. So before I get Corey on, I just wanted to give you guys a little bit of um, backstory to this interview. I want to say about at least 10 years ago, I came across um, in some, you know, in a book I was reading, I came across some people called the Gullah people or the Geechee people who live in the islands of South Carolina. And what fascinated me about them were they were descendants of slaves and who were able to keep a lot of their um, West African heritage. So I was really fascinated about them and um, at the time, but you know, being basically I, 10 years ago, where was I? I was in Texas and just, you know, I really didn't, I was fascinated by again, you know, the funds weren't there. And when you have only two weeks of vacation, you, you're, you're picky about where you go. So unfortunately I never made the trip out to South Carolina to learn more about them. But fast forward to, um, last year, less than about six months ago, um, I had someone stay where I live and this person became a really good friend and I'm sorry I know she doesn't want to be on the air but I have to give her a shout out because she was able to connect me with Corey Alston um, for this interview so Brittany Wright thank you thank you thank you I really appreciate you and your support of this podcast and um, you know y'all she listens in every week without you know without um you know, doubt and gives me her review and I love it. So Brittany, thank you. So Brittany and I became friends and here we are sitting in Accra having a conversation over coffee right before she moved back to the States. And then she lets me know that she is Gullah, which blew my mind because I felt like life was coming round circle for me. And so when she left, she did the kindest thing and left behind a sweet grass basket. And it's still sitting on my uh, bookshelf. I love it. I know I'm supposed to use it, but it's just too precious to me. So Brittany, thank you. So that's how I came to know about Mr. Corey Alston and that he's a sweet grass basket weaver. So without, you know, going on about it, let's get right into the interview. Oh, wait a second, y'all. I even forgot to tell you one of the important things that happened. Uh, so Corey and I recorded this interview um, over Skype. Thank God for Skype. Um, but so a couple of things happened while we were recording. We had the notorious Ghanaian phenomenon called Dumso. For those of you who don't know what Dumso is, it's basically a blackout, a light off. Um, so it happened while we were, you know what, when the conversation was getting really good, it happened. And so we had to stop uh, recording and then come back to it once the generator was on. And then the lights came back on later. And so I apologize a bit for the editing of this um, this piece because I had to kind of you know cut and paste a little bit so wherever it seems I, d I try to do my best but I'm still learning to be my own um, sound en engineer here so forgive me for my sins y'all <laughs> um, so in case in a couple of you know spots you will hear that um, I you know a little bit funky of a um, a transition so that's what's happening um, and now you guys know as well what Doomsaw means so no more talking for me let's get right into the interview thank you thank you and enjoy 
So, Corey, thank you for joining me today. Um, I wanted to start with you telling us a little bit about yourself and where you're from. Yes, yes. Well, um, I'm, a, uh, I'm from the coast of Carolina. I'm from an area called Charleston, South Carolina. Um, actually, I'm in a smaller town next to Charleston, South Carolina, a place called Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. So, Charleston you know, was settled in the, in the 1670s, um, and, and, and the area surrounding it has grown rapidly. So yeah. we're one of the fastest growing, uh, towns, Mount Pleasant is one of the fastest growing towns of South Carolina at the time. Um, I'm here in the United States of America. Okay. Thank you. And well, the main reason why I wanted to do this interview with you is because you are Gullah. So can you tell our listeners who are the Gullah people? Yeah, well, Gullah people are going to be the ancestry from enslaved Africans. Um, as, as my ancestors were brought from the West Coast of Africa during days of enslavement, um, brought here to the States, uh, I am a descendant from them. Uh, who Gullah people are are going to be those people that are still proudly keeping those African traditions alive within uh, ways of preparing food and, 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 and music and spirituals and, and language and, and also within art. Um, Gullah people are going to be a coastal community of four states from the Florida, the top of Florida, around Jacksonville, Florida, around the bottom of North Carolina, around Jacksonville, North Carolina, uh, we're a coastal community of four states, properly known as the Gullah Geechee Corridor. And in that corridor, we are keeping proud parts of our ancestry alive within everyday uses of uh, uh, harvesting from the from the fields or gathering or fishing or, or hunting or uh, having our own personal garden or uh, religion or language or, or different arts that we're still keeping alive. From earlier days, goes all the way back to days of enslavement, that then goes back to the west coast of Africa. Of course, and which which um, goes in. Do you guys know roughly which African countries that you guys are descendants of? Well, based on the weaving that we're still doing here on the coast of Carolina, I'm physically uh, my my job, my my career, my passion. I'm a sweetgrass basket weaver. Uh, the, the baskets are known as a Gullah art. And so we, we have great understanding that the Sierra Leonean basket looks very similar to our basket. Um, as everyone knows, that slave trade was done right around the west coast of Africa. So we would have the, the Ghana descent, the Sierra Leonean descent. You know, we're, we're basically our, 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 where y'all are at. That's pretty much the motherland for us, you know, and so. Yeah. We do have a very strong connection based on descendants. Um, and even yes. food, um, you know, even we share a lot of similar foods that you guys have been able to maintain as well, right. which, is, which is wonderful. Now, in your particular family, how many generations can you say have lived in the islands? Well, um, well, so dating back, you know, as far as, you know, the 17, 16, 1700s, of course, within the enslaved uh, history, we don't really have real good, right. you know, documents and paperwork. And so we can definitely go back uh, five to six generations within my family of knowing who those persons' names were. Uh, once we get back about, uh, I would say, uh, mid-1800s, we get a little foggy on that. Um, mm -hmm. Because then also you had a lot of uh, buying and selling slaves and the dividing of families and so on and so forth. And so that made it a bit hard to still keep track. But um, as time went more closer to, you know, the 1800s to the 1900s into the millennium, we can definitely keep a better track of who those people were. Um, right. and, so, uh, and so that makes it easier from, I would say, you know, mid 1800s until today. Prior to that, it's kind of difficult. Uh, so I would say about four, about five to six generations back, right here in the same area of uh, Charleston County. That's that's amazing that you can trace back. I know 
I, I definitely can't go back that far, of, you know, but um, I'd, I'd have to speak to some of the elders in our family to see how far back we can count, you know, as well. So that's, that's really amazing that you guys are able to go back that far. Mm-hmm. Now, with, of course, as the years pass on, there's a lot of change that's probably coming your way. And do you feel the gentrification going on in the islands, or has it been slow? It's a big, big, big epidemic. Um, At one time, you know, they always, you know, that that hearsay of what we've heard people say for generations. At one time, no one wanted to live by the coast. And the reason why they didn't want to live right on the water or, or the islands is because it says storms would come, storm surges, high tide, low tide. Uh, so it wasn't desired. It wasn't a desired land at one time. Um, and so we had a very strong, tight-knit, you know, black communities, um, I would say, of the early 50s and 60s, that no one lived there for generations. Now we have a major influx of, uh, of the Caucasian race and and of other nationalities that choose to live here by the coast because of the beauty that we've had. You know, we, 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 we wake up to sunrise with us being on the east of, uh, of America. So we wake up to the sunrise every morning. Um, we, yes, we have the, we have the storms, but they don't come so much. You know, they, it's the season of storms, of hurricanes. Um, so the, the, the changing of our landscape has really changed drastically as People from Midwest choose to now move to the coast or people from, you know. So, so Corey, how do you feel about the gentrification of the island? Well, uh, you definitely can see it. It's a, it's a major thing that has been happening, um, I would say, since the 70s, um, mm-hmm. uh, 80s. Every, every, every decade is even worse. Uh, you have a lot of people that are moving in from the Midwest that wants to get closer to the ocean or people from the north that want to get out of the wants to get out of the, the winter weathers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so by that happening, they're moving in the urban areas where the where the families has lived for generations on generations based off of um, tax hikes. And so if the, if you put a house in a certain area that's uh, you know worth XYZ and the other houses aren't worth that. So then the taxes will go up, and then the old fo- old folks that may live on a fixed income, they can't afford that anymore. And so by them not being able to afford that, then they will lose their properties. And so then more gentrification will happen. More whites will move into those urban communities. Uh, it's been happening all over the South, you know. Um, I, I've noticed it because uh, most of the predominantly black neighborhoods uh, for generations are no longer like that anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, and so, uh, and so a lot of people ask us, where, where do the Gullah people live at? And I'm one of the first ones to say, well, we're mixed in now. You know, we're not one secluded little area anymore. And that's because so many people are moving in and then building little gas stations or putting little convenience stores to make it convenient, you know, or putting right. side. Correct, correct. Yeah. Yes. And I, I mean, I kind of saw the same thing happen when I was living in New York. Um, I was in at the tail end of my time there. I was living in Brooklyn, and the area I lived in was predominantly Caribbean. And you started to see the change happen. And what was really sad was the folks that were moving in really didn't see the benefit of the stores that were there. You know, so they, you know, they wanted their Whole Foods, they wanted all the big name, you know, the big brands, but they didn't realize that those mom and pop shops have fresher vegetables, they have, you know, fresh fish, everything you need is right there in the neighborhood. See, even that being said, in some areas, uh, so I'm on the outskirts of Charleston, South Carolina, and my little area has taken on the the bougie mentality mm-hmm. that this area is more predominantly where you want to live at. It's a little more expensive than North Charleston, a little more expensive than West Ashley or, or, or Monk's Corner, Somerville, you know, and so now it's, there are certain stores that cannot be over here anymore. And mm-hmm. so at one time you had the stores like a Ross or a, uh, 
TJ yeah. Maxx. Yeah. Someone that had uh, clothing at, at affordable pricing. They wow. ran those stores out and they brought in stores like Nordstrom's or they brought in stores like uh, Belk's or JCPenney's or what have you. So they wanting to make it like some little baby Beverly Hills or, or you know, a, a, a high and very expensive place to live that also affects those natives that live there. And so now the native has been living there for generations and using these uh, smaller stores because it's affordable. But mm-hmm. now you bring these um, these very expensive locations, it makes it difficult to live. Of course, you have to go further out for everything that you need. Correct, correct. Mm. Yes. Well, that's a shame. But now, do you see that the younger Gullah people, are they fighting to maintain their history and the culture? Or have they kind of said, well, it's time for a change and, you know, they need to move on? I would say that those young people that are involved they are involved because they see they, they have a passion. They may have seen their parents have a passion in it. Um, I would also say that there's a lot of people that has dropped the ball on the culture because the culture really was just a way of life. Um, it really wasn't, it really wasn't um, put into this bubble of culture. You know, this, this bubble of culture that we use, this term that we're using, I would say is a rather new term, a, a rather new way of wording things um, because if your uncle was a fisherman and he caught fish for generations, of, uh, for, for, for decades, that's what he did. He, we lived the culture for so long that now we're being, we, we, within the past 25 plus years, we've been told now that this is a culture. We, right. we, we were just living these ways continuously and then someone helped us to, to take that term to call it a culture. And so I think now when people are realizing that it is called a culture, there are some people that are trying to keep it alive or there's some people that are trying to make sure it's understood or taught or what have you. Um, but then at the same time, you have those that didn't realize or don't see what's going on and they're letting that train just pass them by. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the word gullah, the word gullah within the black has been used a lot heavier within the past. 20 to 25 years. Um, I would say, I would say, uh, we've even had this talk amongst ourselves, uh, amongst us, uh, our, our native people here in the area, uh, you know, table talk. Uh, I would say uh, mid 80s, we didn't hear about it so much. Uh, we didn't realize that we were a part of a culture. We knew, we knew that we sound different. We knew that we ate a lot of seafood. We, we knew we ate a lot of seafood. We knew that we were ancestries from enslaved Africans. Don't get me wrong. But right. to say it was specifically a unique culture, we just, you know, we just, we, no, it, I think, I think I would, you know, speaking of gentrification, I would give that, I would give them that credit. Okay. I would give, I, I would give the move, the, the people that have moved in within the past 20 plus years, the credit of helping us to see who we are, if that yes. makes any sense. No. Uh, because, because if you live a certain way for hundreds and hundreds of years, you're just used to living that way. You know, if, if, you, if you had this remedy of breaking a fever, and that's the way your grandmother did it, and her grandmother did it, and so on and so forth, that's just the way of life. But when you have these newcomers moving in, and they're putting a bubble around this one group of people that are considered part I'm sorry, say that again? No, 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 go ahead. There was a glitch in the line. Okay, yeah. So you had so so we have this one group of people that has put a, a bubble around us to say we're different. We're we're the native people and now we're gonna figure out who they are. We are mm-hmm. Gullah Geechee people. But at the same time we didn't realize how unique we were as a people, I feel, until we was until we kept hearing the word. Until you, you keep hearing it, you're hearing it, you're hearing it. Now you want to find what makes you different from those who just moved in. Absolutely. I, I think a similar thing is happening all over Africa because, of course, we, you know, we've always had the different tribes and languages and everything in our traditions. But 
the more, especially with people moving back from the diaspora, coming back in, they are looking for that identity. So they've really taken on the task of recording, you know, our folklore, our culture and everything because they are trying to understand us. And hence they're they're leaving a, you know, a written record for us because a lot of African history is oral history. So, you know, so in the past, let's say 50 years, we've really started to get a history being written and of late, you're starting to see more accurate histories because they're coming from people of color as opposed to from a, coloni- a colonial view. Correct. And so I would say for us, we're, we're, we were the people of color that's lived in these areas for so long. And, and those native colonizers that lived here with us, they mm-hmm. lived with us for so many years that they became a part of us, a part of our traditions. And then as you had those non-South Carolinians or, or coastal Georgia people, uh, they're the ones that I would say helped us to realize who we were. Um, because generationally, we, we've been keeping up, we've been doing the same thing generationally, showing the children, the next generation, next generation, uh, how to keep these old things alive. And then yeah. when a person not from here realizes that y'all are doing something a whole lot different down there. You know, who are y'all? And then so they started looking back into the records and finding out, you know, who's this ethnic group of people and and their heritage and their and their lineage back to Africa and so on and so forth. And so that's who we are. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really, uh, you know, different spin on gentrification. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, But but also, mm -hmm. though, Anita, I don't want, you know, you know, as we talk about it, I don't want to miss the part of how they've taken over as well. Oh, you know, they, yeah. And so, yes, they have helped us to realize that we're the, the, the indigenous people of the area, but they also have helped themselves yes. on taking exactly. it over. Exactly. Yes, yes. Which, um, you know, not to point fingers, but that is their history, isn't it? It is. <laughs> it's our history. So, okay. Well, we're going to change gears a little bit so that we can talk about your passion. I want yes, to talk yes. about sweetgrass baskets. Can yes, you... well, that is, that is my passion. Yes, I'm listening. Go ahead. So, all right. So when did you get started weaving? Well, I actually, I'm born in the same area that my wife was, but my, my wife actually, we was dating at the time. Okay. Um, her family was weaving baskets for generations and I married into the business, and so okay. uh, the, the the family history. Uh, so we grew her and I. We grew up, let's say, six to seven miles away from each other, in the mm-hmm. same town. Within the same town, you had a family families that did basket weaving, and then you had families uh, enslaved. You had enslaved people that were basket weavers. You had enslaved people that were farmers, blacksmithing. Mm-hmm. Uh, carpenter, so on and so forth. Uh, right. So the basket side was my wife's family side from a plantation that was north of the plantation that my family was enslaved at. And so the history was so uh, the, 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 the binding, the coming together as one was so unique because I've always lived in the same town that we had. So within the area, if you can visualize a small tribe, I word it that way, a small mm-hmm. tribe of people knew how to make sweetgrass baskets. One tribe were carpenters, one tribe were blacksmiths, so on and so forth. And so her family were basket weavers. So when we started dating at the age of 17 and 18, I was 18 at the time. Oh, wow. And she's been doing this since she was a child because mm-hmm. her mother did it, her mother did it, and so on and so forth. She showed me how to do it. And so now I've been weaving every day for the past, uh, so we've married, we've married going on our 18th year dating for 20. So I've been doing this now for about, I would say 19 years, every day, a part of everyday life. Um, and, and, and what makes it so crazy is that we were only about five, six miles away from each other. We grew up in the same town, same community. I'm Gullah by ancestry. She's Gullah by ancestry. 
her family had a trade in sweetgrass. My family had a trade in carpentry. And so we we blended so well because we went to school. We went to element, uh, middle school together, high school together, um, basically high school sweethearts or what have you. And yeah. then as we got older, uh, I actually started working with the family business. And so the family business had a spot in what people know to be the Charleston City Market. And mm-hmm. so now... I've been running the family business now. My business now has been running there uh, for about 15 years. That's amazing. That's amazing. And, okay, with the baskets, what do you guys use the baskets primarily for? Is it just, you know, I mean, I'm sure back in the day they they had more functional uses. But are people still using them or are they just buying them as crafts now? Um, I would say, well, you know, if they if they get a chance to meet, you know, myself or or uh, uh, my sister, we both work together. Karen, my wife, my, she actually my sister-in-law. We call oh. each other brother sister because we work together for so long. We would educate the people so much so they understand what makes it unique, what's the significance of it, why you should use them, why you should not look at it as art, you know, why you shouldn't just put it on the shelf and never touch it, you know. So mm-hmm. I would say we're making them today for primary usage. Um, yes, they're so nice that some people want to put them up and never touch them, just look at them as a piece of art. Uh, yes, there's sometimes they would take so much time that the price point would not want a person to use it. But as an artist, you know, we're going to highly recommend using them for your bread, your keys, your chains, your, your mm-hmm. fruit bowls, your, your, uh, your storage bins. Um, traditionally, yes, they were used in early days for agricultural purposes, for harvesting, collecting, cleaning, uh, sifting, uh, storing. You know, yes, they were used for those purposes. And we as weavers today, we still recommend using it for that reason. Absolutely. There's one pattern, yeah, there's one pattern that we don't recommend using for that purpose, and that would be the oldest piece known as a rice pattern. Uh, we're not cleaning raw rice anymore. You know, we're buying a bag of rice already winnowed. You know, the shaft is already taken off of it. But that is our oldest pattern that we're continuing to make. Okay. Wow. And now, how long does it take you to weave a basket? Um, I can get one done, uh, the average basket. Let's say I use a a measuring that that everyone would understand. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's say a gallon of milk. Uh, let's say a gallon, a gallon jug of water, a gallon of milk. I can get something like that done right about three days in that piece there. Um, wow. And so, and so what is known is known as a coiled weaving. We're starting in the dead center, right in the middle of it, and we're working our ways outward. And so by using all natural materials, we use no synthetic. We use all natural stuff that is that we harvest right here from the area. Mm-hmm. Um, once we harvest those grasses, then we lay them to sun dry. Once they start to sun dry, then they take on a most natural color. Uh, the four materials that we use is the sweet grass, pine needle, palmetto, uh, uh, and then um, bulrush. Now, people always know the term of bulrush. Bulrush is the biblical grass that Moses is found in. And okay. so what happened as those enslaved were brought from the west coast of Africa, they found a similar material here on the coast of Carolina, um, the similar materials that, that, that they would have woven on the west coast of Africa, but for the same purposes. Um, on the west coast of Africa, they, they were used for working purposes, storage bins, uh, rice cleaning baskets, or harvesting style baskets. And so those enslaved that were brought here to what they call the new world of that time, right. they used those same styles for the same purposes. Um, and what has made it so unique, that area that most of that basket weaving was kept alive is in the town that we grew up in. It's called Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. And so there were, there were, there were baskets in all the sea islands at one time because multiple, you know, enslaved people know how to make baskets. But the way of keeping it alive for over 300 plus years was mostly in this one town called Mount Pleasant. And that's what we all are uh, live at now. And this town has been credited for keeping the art alive for 300 plus years. Yeah, wow. that that's wonderful. 
Yeah. Wonderful. And historically, did they, you know, was weaving a basket more a woman's job or at what point, and if it was, at what point did the men start to get involved? Well, um, historically, historically, men were the original weavers, historically. Um, historically, as that African uh, lived on the coast of Africa, the men made the baskets mostly because the hands were stronger. They made bigger pieces. Um, they didn't have to keep on making that same style over and over again because the hands were so strong. Based on the history of what the enslaved man was made to do, right. women kept it alive. And oh. so now we, we, we always give that respect to those women that is taught from mother to daughter, from, from grandmother to granddaughter. For 300 plus years, women has been credited for keeping the art alive generationally. To see a guy doing it now, we look funny. You know, it looks like, wow, you, you a man basket weaver, you know? And right. so, um, and, and so, and so it's the reason why we look funny is because as you pass through the city, uh, or pass through the areas where the baskets are woven or read the history or, 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 you know, Wikipedia, what a sweetgrass basket is and who meet and who makes it. We hear from mother to daughter because that's the way it's been for 300 plus years. But when you ask me about the question of historically, right. men were the original weavers. When the man became the enslaved African, he then became a blacksmith or a carpenter or a fisherman or or uh, whatever trade he was made to do. And so when the women and the daughters stayed closer to the home, they were the ones that then kept the art alive. Yeah. Very interesting. And yeah. is there, um, are the baskets used in any ceremonial events like weddings, funerals? I would say um, we do have a wedding basket. You know, we do make a wedding basket. We also make a, uh, well, I personally make a lot of wedding jumping broom. And oh, so okay. historically, uh, you're speaking of historically, uh, that yeah. piece that I make came from days of enslavement, uh, came from the West Coast of Africa as well. I make this broom because, as we all know, our, our ancestry, they weren't allowed to get married like the whites were. And so this jumping broom that I make, um, it's for wedding ceremonies. Um, it allows the, the, the people of today to feel like they're keeping a big part of their heritage alive by using this old uh, symbolic broom that was made. You know, I make it today so it looks a little more newer. But the, the, the history of jumping the broom is something that I'm able to create for those weddings of whoever requests one. Um, as far as funerals, we don't have a a basket of sorrow. We don't have a we um, we sometimes make an Easter basket for those little little boys and girls that then they use that basket every year for harvesting and gathering their little eggs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so uh, within ceremonies, I would say mostly the only ceremonial uh, basket that is woven is for weddings. We do oh. the flower girl baskets. I do the wedding jumping broom. Um, and, and, and sometimes we, you know, we make bread baskets for the tables or what have you. And what do you see as the future of sweetgrass? Do you, do you see it as a dying art or is it going strong? Well, um, to those that are, you know, to those that research the, the, the growth of sweetgrass, to those that, that looks at the generational connection from one generation to the next, they would say that the art form will die within 65 years. Um, they say two to three generations from the millennial, it'll be, it'll die off completely for two reasons is what they say. Um, and they say this because the sweetgrass is knowingly extremely hard to find now. Um, you spoke of gentrification, mm -hmm. um, that little area that I that we grew up in, uh, it was rural at one time. A lot of marshlands, a lot of areas where we can find sweetgrass material to make baskets. Now those areas, waterfront properties, of course, 
Now these areas have now became communities or or shopping centers or as they grew up the area, we no longer have the, the, the ease of finding these materials. So going further and further and further south is definitely inconvenient, uh, but we're doing it. We can go as far south as Florida to find material, but everywhere on the coast is being grown up. And so when you grow up these areas, gentrification, you know, when you start moving in people from all over and they now have to put a community there and a shopping center or a school there. So that wetland that we would harvest those raw materials from is no longer there. The other reason that they're saying that it will be dead in in two to three generations as far as no one else doing the weaving is because of generational uh as 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 we are as we are as a people are getting better jobs and 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 more electronics and and more hands on to uh bigger and better careers we're not really we're not really falling back into into historically handmade items as much as we were um i can speak for myself i have two daughters and my two daughters they they don't really want to make this their career as of right now they don't they have other goals that they would want to do from what 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 we're hearing Mm-hmm. And of course, by supporting them and every parent will support their children and what they want to do. Most of the younger generation is not wanting to sit down for eight to 11 hours every day to make a basket. Um, right. And so as that goes on, we have less and less weavers. Mm-hmm. As the development goes on, we have less and less areas to harvest material. And so for those two reasons, um, it's estimated 65 years It'll be completely gone, and and sadly, uh, one family can't keep it all alive by themselves. Of course, of course. Right. Oh well, well, that makes me a little bit sad uh, to right. hear, that, you know. But I'm, I do hope some of the younger generation will take it up and keep it going, you know. Right. Um, I, I agree. Yeah. Okay. Well, now. I, I want to get to some of your folklore because right. I love folklore and superstition and I'm sure the Gullah folks have some really interesting ones that are, you know, similar to what we've got out here. Right. Oh, so so, you want to share? Yeah. yeah, we have, a, we have a, uh, I would say you can make a probably a nice little short story book, you know, of, of our folklores and our, superstition and and things that grandma's grandma may have said and and so we'll start we'll start just as simple as uh within Gullah culture not just people in general within yeah. Gullah culture if you see uh two or more black crows on the top of the house like on the arch of the home okay. then that means someone is dying or someone will die um oh. and so no one likes to see black crows on the house that's one of them Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, evil spirits is a big part of Gullah tradition. The Gullah people do not like evil spirits. We are very, very big in positive, great vibe, great auras. So mm-hmm. with that being said, uh, we have something called a, a bottle tree. And in this bottle tree, uh, I have one in my front yard because I'm a Gullah, I'm, I'm Gullah through and through. And yeah. so with this bottle <laughs> tree, it's really, it's really more of a fun. I'm a part, you know. I'm keeping my heritage alive. I'm, I'm, I'm in tune to my people, kind of thing. And so I have a, I have a bottle tree. On my bottle tree, I have 24 blue bottles okay. that are turned upside down, uh-huh. um, and they're bottle. They're, they're sitting on this tree that was made for me, and it sits in my yard. That superstition says. Uh, as those evil spirits come into your yard, uh, try to get into your home, they they slip into this bottles, right? And as they slip into the bottles, the bottles are upside down, so they can't get out of the bottles, so they're stuck in the bottle. All they know how to do is go upward. And so as they're going upward, they're stuck in the bottles, and that and that morning sunshine makes the dew in the bottles dissipate. So then that evil spirit dies within the morning sunshine. Oh, that's nice. And so that's the old superstition that has been going on. And the Gullah Bible, uh, the Gullah bottle tree, 
Um, some people say that if the wind hits the bottles just right, you hear whoo sound. <laughs> that sound is those evil spirits that were stuck in the bottle. Okay. Uh, now, if you think common sense, of course, that's just the way the wind blew across the right. bottle. Give a howl sound, but uh, it's fun. It's it's harmless. Uh, Another another superstition that I I actually have done as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, My porch, my porch ceiling has been painted in a very very light color blue. It's called a haint blue. This haint blue is another thing uh, that makes the evil boo hags or the or the or the spirits or the. Or the, or the, or the uh, what have you. They don't want to cross over the blue. And so you paint your porch ceiling this color because okay. as you paint the porch ceiling this color, they won't, they won't enter your house. No negative vibes. Uh, uh, warning in homes by Gullah people. And then, uh, wow, I'm glad you asked me about this, Anita. I've, I've done a lot of different um, Gullah traditions. Uh, my wife and I, we, we purchased a home a while back, and we had a, a one of the one of the very known Gullah Geechee uh, uh, people. She's known as Queen Quet. She came and blessed my home. And the way to blessing the home was by putting uh, uh, garlic in the corners of the house or cayenne pepper in the yeah. corners of the house. And that way, so no evilness will ever come in the house and disrupt the families and. Uh, another Gullah tradition that I've always seen grandmas do for little grandchildren is when the children uh, can't sleep or having bad dreams at night, they'll open the, the Lord's Prayer and put mm-hmm. that Lord's Prayer Bible open in the bedroom or under the pillow of that child. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it just it just gives that that comforting feeling that you know the God is with you as you're sleeping and don't That's let no one you know. Yeah, another one that we have. Oh, I got a book of them. I'm not thinking about it. Oh, this is interesting. This is my yeah. favorite part. <laughs> yeah, another one that I have is uh, that that we have as our culture is uh, the boo hag. Boo hag is a bad mama. And so what the boo hag will do is as you sleep on your back in the middle of the night, this hag will ride you, and this hag will feel like it pulls all your energy out of you. You can't move. You can't talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, they say scientifically it's some type of sleep apnea. Yeah. And so within, yeah. All right. So within our culture, uh, we call it a boo hag, and no one wants that boo hag to ride them because it's almost like uh, once you've been ridden by the boo hag, you're 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 almost not worthy no more. It's like you're you're done, you know. And so uh, uh, that's just another superstition. Of course. They say, uh, well, I've never had one ride me. And the reason is because I sleep on my belly. And so you have to be on your back. You have to be on your back. Yeah. I've unfortunately had that that ride happen a few times when I was in college, uh-huh. and it was not fun. It was terrifying. <laughs> so you're a back sleeper? Um, once I roll over at some point at night and... It, it used to happen all the time, but it hasn't happened in a very long time, so thankfully. Uh, okay. But when I, was, when I was in college, it was quite often. So scientifically, they said it's a sleep apnea, correct? Yeah. Yes, it's a form, yeah. Yeah, and so within our culture, it's called a boo hag. And, mm-hmm. and so what makes it so funny is because you would see these older people in the street or in a cookout or your neighbor and they would say that, oh, Miss So and So, she's a hag. She'll ride you in your sleep. And so it's almost like it's almost like her spirit will leave her body, her body come to come out and ride you while you're sleeping, kind of thing, you know. And so then that that always was a joke because then that was a generational hag as well. And mm-hmm. so if she was a hag, her daughter would be a hag. Oh, and so no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, so it's really just a bunch of kids being mean and ugly. You know, because uh, when it, when it's all said and done, if it's sleep apnea, that's what it is. Sleep apnea, that's what it, you know. But a bunch of kids being ugly, and they call the ugly lady next door a boo hag because she's mm-hmm. not pretty, and 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 they, they may have seen her in a dream or what have you. But uh, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of superstition and folklore within our culture. Most of it is keeping evil away. Right. Uh, most of it is most of it is trying to trying to shoo off any bad spirits. Um, they say if it's, they say 
if it's raining, you should you should cancel your wedding. You know, if it's raining and you you're gonna get married that day within my cult, you know, no one does it because we've gotten so far out of following old superstitions. Well, and but it's expensive time, to cancel the wedding. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> But at one time, they say, you never get married in the rain because you will wash all the blessings away. Oh. And so God has blessed that day for you to marry, to get married on the holy matrimony. Mm-hmm. And if you go out there and get married while it's a rainstorm or any raining happening, the blessings wash away. And so that's, you know, there's a bunch of them. I don't want to take up the but it's a lot of fun, though. It's a lot of fun. Oh, thank you. Well, I hope you guys are writing them down because... You know, I've had fun just listening to them. So I hope you write them down for for future generations. Yes, yes. Now, as you were talking about the folklore, I see there's definitely, you know, a nice mix of the folklore mixed in with Christianity. How have you, how have the Gala people been able to maintain that balance? Well, um, I, I think folklore, honestly, will be a uh, a funny topic, you know, something that's fun to talk about. You get a little chuckle, you get a little laugh. If you're trying to keep certain things alive or show the next generation what it's all about, it's it's um, it's totally separate. Um, I would I find that our folklore or our superstition has nothing to do with our our religious uh, uh, our religious base. Um, reason why I would say that is because um, Christianity, well, you know, being a being a biblical religion, the book itself is something totally different from what our grandmothers had little superstitional stories about, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, within the culture, Gullah people, we are very big uh, in Christianity, and that's our main religion. Um as most people know that that religion was given to the enslaved as they were being uh, uh, made to do different jobs as a slave African, enslaved African, the Christianity was given to them because that was a way of also making those people of that time very submissive. You know, that the, the masters would read these, these chapters and these, these verses and also making alternate, the, the alternating these, wording so they really would believe that uh, they should be an enslaved African forever for generations. Um, as we move forward, uh, the Gullah people has, you know, did their own understanding and researching and, and they did, they still want to be Christians, mm-hmm. uh, realizing that, you know, this is the religion that they chose. And uh, I would say m- most, most people that choose the religion that they want, they chose for their own personal reason, you know. Um, and so by saying Christ is our, our uh, you know, our, our Lord and Savior, and, then, you know, God is, is at the, is at the fourth, at the fourth, you know, is the head and the son of him and so on and so forth. Um, it was, it was given to uh, us as a people, but mm-hmm. now today we've chosen still to follow that based on uh, our, our beliefs based on our testimonies based on blessings that we have received on our own on our own and so it's no more brainwashing us of the religion is what we chose as a people you know um, and it's just so happy that we were so heavily influenced by christianity as a child i'm sorry as enslaved people mm-hmm. that as you show that next generation that if you pray, you will receive blessing. If you if you fall to your knees and 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 give your problems to God, and He will bless you or answer your prayers. And and so we've had these our own personal testimonies of why we're still of the Christian faith. And so um, it is what it is. Uh, I'm a very firm believer in Christ, and mm-hmm. it's nothing because of enslavement. You know, it's because I have my own personal readings and, and understanding and personal relationship with him and 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 so uh i feel that it was meant to be given to us of that time because now we're still following and believing and teaching the next generation of 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 that religion um that's probably one of the one of the good things may have came out of enslavement um because mm-hmm. because as those enslaved africans i'm sorry as the africans of the 1700s and the 
1600s and so on and so forth, they may not have read the English word to even know about Christianity of that time. And so when you pull, when they pulled our ancestors out of Africa, they also taught us this religion. And this religion is something that we're still uh, firm believers in. Mm -hmm. No, it's um, the reason why I asked was, you know, here in Ghana, especially, and I'm sure it's the same over most of Africa, they have found a way to, even though they, they are very devout, uh, devout Christians, over here, we don't ask people, you know, where are you from? It's usually what church do you go to? Right. You know, it's, it's a very common question. But even with all of the, um, the Christianity elements that are here, they've still found ways to mix it in with local culture. So, wow. for example, at our funerals, we'll have a church service. But follow it up with maybe some traditional, you know, traditional music and dancing to, you know, to celebrate the person who's passed on to give them a good send off. Okay, okay. And you see, know. we would have that more in the uh, totally different culture, uh, okay. more in the Creole culture. Okay. So within the Creole culture, more in the more in the uh, Louisiana Bayou, uh, New Orleans, uh, that area within they celebrate. They celebrate death, uh, mm -hmm. and Gullah people we mourn death, you know. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. and so within the mourning of our death, we would, you know, we may have a repast. Mm -hmm. Would that be after the funeral? Then we would all maybe congregate and have a meal together collectively. Um, unlike the Creole people, they will play instruments and 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 make a big block party out of it because they're more celebrating the life of that person. So mm -hmm. they're celebrating uh, the life or the, 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 the meeting of the two, the dead person maybe going into heaven. I don't really know what the Creoles believe. Yeah. Um, on their religious base. Uh, you have a, you have a lot of different religions under the Creole faith, under mm -hmm. the Creole culture. And so I don't want to misinterpret just why they're celebrating. I would say they're celebrating the life of that person. Is what I would guess, you know, yeah. But within our culture, Gullah, uh, we we don't do anything of celebrating. Um, if anything, we're 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 with the family of the of the person that has passed before the funeral. Maybe mm -hmm. two three days. We we call it a um, we call it a oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, oh boy, wake. So we call it a wake. And so what the wake is, we sit up with the family. We bring the yeah. family food. We stay at the home for, you know, come and go for two, three days before the funeral. After the funeral, you may get a one more meal of a repast at the church itself, and then it's over. And then it's over with. Yeah. Um, now, as far as Anita, you saying a little folklore, I mean, a little a little tradition, a little culture. Yeah. I, don't feel that we, I don't feel like we have any culture with funerals. I really don't. You don't. Um, I, I find that our... I find that our funerals will be very biblical. And so what I say that is, is once you've put that person in the ground and you said your, your, you gave your, your kisses and your goodbyes and your roses or what have you, that's a done deal. You know, mm -hmm. um, yeah, that, that's how I would answer that. Yeah, that's really different here. There's a lot of tradition around it. If you ever get a chance, I wrote a blog about my grandfather's funeral a while back and because that was my first time um, in, you know um, being part of a funeral here and it just blew my mind there is so much that goes on and I, I you know I I was just done the whole time <laughs> and it goes on um, it's usually about three four days uh -huh. and, then, and then at the end of the funeral then you have the fun day where people you know sort of Split up, you know, where the will, if there's a will, the will is read, and then, or the, the person who's passed their belongings, everything is divvied up amongst the family or their children, or, you know, so that can be a tense day before, once that's done, then everything is, um, then the matter is closed. Yes, for us, we don't even have nothing like that. Mm -hmm. um, if, if there was a will, that would be something very, very private. Um, right. Oh, no one will even know that that was being done. 
Um, we have a thing here in the state that's called probate. And with right. probate, it, it takes, oh, you may know about it. And yeah. so if, if there wasn't a will, then the state has to figure out how to divide stuff or uh, all that. You know, it's, it's a very private, you know, you don't really know if the family's even meeting up to divide anything. Um, it could even happen weeks after the funeral. You know, and from what you're saying, your y'all can sometimes do it within that right around that time, huh? Yes, we do it as part of uh, the funeral process. But to be fair, also over here, we don't bury people right away. It, that's not very common um, because of how before they die. Pardon? How long does the does the corpse sit up before it dies? I mean, before it's uh, buried. That depends on how, you know, how popular, let's say if it's a king or a chief, that could take maybe, you know, up to a year or more because basically that's, you have to give them a grand send off. So every family, rich or poor, they try their best to raise enough money to give off the best send off that they can. Um, Now, does that corpse have embalming fluid in it? Um, they sit in a morgue, and then from the morgue, they go, um, basically, they're in a freezer, and then the Friday, um, what do you call, the day before, or usually a Thursday or Friday, then they come take the body out, they give it to you, and you, you know, and then it's dressed for the funeral. So once it's out, the you know, within a day, the, the body is buried. Wow. Okay, so it stays in the morgue the whole time for that whole year. Yes. So depending oh. on the family, you know, how what resources you have. There are some folks who have been in the morgue for over a year because their families are still trying to raise money to be able to send them home. Wow, wow. And yeah. see, here, here, uh, it's very unlikely for that person to be out of the ground. I'm sorry. It's very unlikely for that person to not be buried within seven days. Mm-hmm. No grand send-off, unless... Unless you're, you know, maybe famous or something, uh, maybe, 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 you know. But the average death, the average death, yeah. You, uh, they, they are embalmed with embalming fluid, mm-hmm. you know, so the family can see them and or and and have them either haircutted or dressed and put a suit on them or what have you. And uh, that's pretty much it. We don't really glorify death. It's more of a sad, it's a sad occasion. Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, we're both learning here. This is <laughs> so okay. Well, to close out this amazing conversation, I'd love for you to speak to us in Gullah. Okay, okay. Yeah. Well, uh, so let me let me give you a little something, Anita, before we close out in that. I'm gonna yeah. tell you why we don't speak it as much. Um, okay. So we can we can you know we can self. We can self-teach ourselves back the language. Mm-hmm. Um, the language isn't a part of us uh, anymore uh, within our culture. We mm-hmm. now would have dialect from it, if that makes any okay. sense. Right, um, right. The pure language was English and African words that was blended and put in together. Um, I understand that that language was a great way of communicating as the enslaved used that way of underground railroading. The whites did not understand them at that time. And so they can communicate to tell you about the next safe house speaking in Gullah, or they can tell you where, where what's, what river you should take by speaking in Gullah. It was a blended language of multiple, multiple tribes. Right. And English is what it was. That's what Gullah, the language was. Um, and so now I would say, I would say, 98% of Gullah people today will speak the dialect from the physical language. Um, and, and so I would say that if there's 2% people speaking Gullah today, it's because they are, they are presenters, they are historians, they are, they, are, they, are, they are those that are known for speaking Gullah storytelling or what have you. Um, the average person doesn't speak it is because of grade school. And so generationally, for four to five generations, you've had the language died out, you know, continuously because the grade school, that's uh, kindergarten through fifth grade, 
those teachers would say, no, don't say it that way. Don't, don't, don't pronounce it that way, little Charles, or what have you. Say it this way. And so as the schools taught more of the Queen's English, we lost the native language. And so um, with that being said, I don't speak it as fluently as some of the presenters, uh, those people that will come and give you a Gullah storytelling. But it will sound, I can give you one sentence, and it'll sound something like, all is beef down and so something like that, being all that being said, I can give you a sentence, but it feels like a brain overpowering if I continue <laughs> to try to talk that way. And so something like all this beef down yeah, uh, would be something said fast, quickly. Um, that language was used so much during Underground Railroading, and that was so the enslaved can then find a next safe house. Do you have any idea what I said, Anita? Um, what I think real I quickly? I, I think you said all these people out here. Okay, and so what I did say is all of us are from here. All of us are from here is what I said. Oh. Uh, but, <laughs> but the wording would be said so fast that it would then throw that white person, the slave owner's ears mm -hmm. off. He or she would not understand it. And then that would help that enslaved family find the next safe house. Safe or the house. next river to leave out of enslaved areas or so on and so forth. And so, uh, like I said, I'm not able to translate it a long time. If I was speaking with someone and we were more having fun, then you would hear more about dialect of uh, the dialect of Gullah. You know, it would be more of the watered down version of Gullah words. Um, I have no African words in my dialect. Now, we do have African words that are still kept alive within uh, within ways of storytelling uh, mm -hmm. that has, you know, meanings that only means that in Gullah, like Bukra. Bukra would be uh, another word for the white man or yam. Yam would be a word for to eat or, uh, um, uh, you know, there's, there's different words that we still have mm -hmm. that we know was a Gullah word. Um, but we also know that it could have been, it definitely would be an African word, but we don't know where it came from, if that makes any sense. Right. Yeah. Well, Kawhi, I really thank you for, you know, oh, thank you. all this knowledge with me today. Yes, yes. It's amazing. And before we sign off, I'd like you to tell everyone where they can find you in Charleston right. and the name of your business so that if anyone's going out that way, they should definitely stop by and visit you, myself included. Yes, that'd be great. That'd be awesome. Well, I am Corey Alston. I'm a sweetgrass basket weaver. Um, my booth is in the Charleston City Market of, uh, of Charleston, South Carolina. I'm on the Meeting Street side of the market, right below the door to the Confederate Museum. Uh, ways to find me on social media. Uh, I have a very active business Facebook page. On Facebook, you can put in the at symbol at Sweetgrass Basket, singular, without an S. That's at Sweetgrass Basket. That goes to my business page on Facebook or on Instagram. I am Corey underscore Austin underscore Sweetgrass Basket. Okay. And so um, always uh, my contact numbers are public. So if you want to call me and ask questions about Gullah culture or sweetgrass baskets or, or what, you know, just, just, just things in general, you can always give me a shout at 843-442-1855. I want to thank you, Anita, for having me. Thank you so much. And thank you for keeping the culture alive. We appreciate it. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so I appreciate it. I'm proud to be a part of it. Yes, I am.